Well, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 in your Bibles this morning. I love Romans chapter 12. That's why we've been slowing down and and taking it piece by piece. And these opening verses in Romans chapter 12, I hope that you've taken some time in your life to memorize them. If you haven't done so in the past, I encourage you to do that this week. If you have done it in the past, I encourage you to be refreshing and reviewing that. These are verses that you want to always be able to have at your recall. Verses that you should be able to think about while you have a moment to meditate while driving. And perhaps if you're in the doctor's office uh, or the optometrist waiting for your meeting, you have some verses that you can dwell on that can be food for your soul. When you are just in a moment where you just need some focus and your spirit is troubled, to be able to, to go back to Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 and remember who you are and who we are and what our purpose here in life is This powerful, powerful words of God that are worthy of memorization. I'd like to begin this morning with a quotation from a great preacher and author, a Christian man, Charles Hodge, back in the 19th century. And he wrote that real honor consists in doing well what God calls us to do and not in the possession of high office or noticeable talents. If you are a person who does not have high office or noticeable talents, don't be upset about that. Don't be concerned about that. But instead, do well what God has called you to do. And if you are a person who is very talented or have a high position, a high office, well, don't take any delight and joy in your office or your talents, but instead, analyze yourself. Am I doing what God has called me to do with my office and with my talents? This is a great quote for all of us, for those of us who feel very talented, for those of us who don't feel very talented. And I put it in that way, feel talented or don't feel talented, because God judges things differently than than we do, than mankind does. And God has made us different. And some people value certain talents above others, but that doesn't mean that God is that way. God values talents in a different perspective, with a wisdom that is supernatural. A great quote for us as we consider our life together. We're looking into God's Word and discussing the subject of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, like natural gifts, are diverse. Not everybody has the same spiritual gift. Not everybody has the same abilities. And so when God distributes a variety of talents and gifts, whether they are spiritual or natural, it is common for people to become envious or discontented or jealous or proud or whatever the case may be. There's a lot of opportunity for sin when it comes to the diversity with which God has made us as human beings. And when it comes to diversity, diversity is a wonderful thing. I can agree with our culture on that subject. But the power of diversity is only realized when there is a unity in Jesus Christ. God in Jesus Christ is the great unifier, the one who is able to make the diversity function the way it was designed to function. And so that's what we find in Holy Scripture, and that's what is really the shining light of the church in the world. The world is looking for what we have a unity in the midst of great diversity. We've been looking into Romans chapter 12, and this morning we come to verses 6 through 8. 
And our title for this morning is The Charismata or The Gifts. Now, in the contemporary church, there's a division, as there often is in all ages of the church. And one of the major divisions in the church in the world today is between what is known as the charismatic church and the, I guess we call it the uncharismatic church. <laughs> but anyway, the charismatic church focuses on certain spiritual gifts, and that's where the word charismatic comes from. It's from the Greek word for charis, for grace, which is related to the Greek word for gift. And so God has given grace. He has given spiritual gifts, spiritual abilities to the church, and that's what Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8 is all about. And so we'll be getting a little bit into some of the divisive issues or the controversial issues regarding the gifts, the charismata. But I want you to know from the outset that we are not an uncharismatic church. Now, I'm not saying that I'm with the charismatic movement so-called, but what I'm saying is, is that we believe in spiritual gifts. We believe in spiritual powers. We believe that we have supernatural strength in order to carry out the work of God in this world. And this is an exciting subject that sometimes we get so focused on the controversies that we miss out on the real value of what is here in Romans 12, 6 through 8. And that's why I particularly love this list of verses, this list of gifts in these verses, because it focuses on the gifts that are still active in the church today. All right, so with that in mind, I'd like to read with you Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, getting the whole context here and then leading into the verses we're going to be focused on in verses 6 through 8. So start with me at the beginning of the chapter. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that has been given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The plan of God in the church. That's what we want to talk about as we examine verses 6 through 8. Now, before we get into verses 6 through 8, you'll notice on the outline that I've got Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter chapter 4 also as some background verses as to what is the church how is the church supposed to function? What is our goal? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? Or really, more accurately, what is God trying to accomplish? What is his design and purpose? And how do we get there? So who are we? What are we doing? What's the plan? What's the goal? That's where Ephesians chapter 4 comes in and fills in 
some of what Paul is just touching on very briefly here in Romans. And then I also want to take a look at 1 Peter 4 before we look at the seven gifts that are listed here in Romans chapter 12. So keep a marker here in Romans 12 and come with me back to where we had our scripture reading in Ephesians chapter 4. As I mentioned last week, Ephesians chapter 4 is probably the passage that I have preached the most in this pulpit. And this chapter has been preached the most in this pulpit for a reason. This is the passage that I go back to whenever I'm trying to answer the question of what are we doing? How are we doing it? Uh, What are we trying to accomplish? And so this is a passage that keeps us on focus and keeps us together with a unity of vision that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to begin here back in Ephesians chapter 4. You notice the unity that is emphasized there in the opening verses. The exhortation, as Paul begins to speak to the church in Ephesus and probably also the other churches there in Asia Minor, this is probably a circular letter that Ephesus came to be associated with most strongly as the, the key city in the area. But the emphasis on the unity, where Paul says we are to be eager, in verse 3, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is the Spirit of God who is able to unite humanity. We were created with a purpose. And if we all create our own purpose that is contrary to what God has created us to be, that's why there's no peace in the world. As mankind has fallen away from God, we've fallen away from our purpose to know and glorify God. And so this group of people develops their purpose, and this group of people develops their purpose, and they're often at war with one another because of the evil desires that have taken over the human heart and has infected the cultures of this world that are apart from God and have lost that sense of biblical purpose. But in Christ... You can bring different ethnic groups together in one body with one purpose, with one goal and one mind. This is what the Spirit of God creates when he causes us to be born again and enters into our spirits. The dwelling of God in human flesh is what is accomplished in the new covenant by the unity of the Spirit. And we are eager to maintain it. We don't create the unity. God creates the unity. We maintain the unity that God has created. And so that focus on the unity in the following verses with one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father, that focus on the unity then leads into the discussion of the diversity in the following verses. And so Christ gave gifts to men in verse 8. And it says also in verse 7, grace was given to each one. Charismata, grace, was given to each one. This is something that is true for every believer, whether you are part of the charismatic movement and speak in tongues, or whether you're not a part of that movement and you don't think they're actually speaking in tongues. Every believer has been given grace by the Lord Jesus Christ. When he ascended, then he poured out the Holy Spirit and he has distributed these spiritual powers among his people. Spiritual power. It's amazing. It is somewhat hidden from the eyes of the world. The gifts that we have are not as spectacular as some of the gifts that the apostles in the early church had, but just because they're not spectacular, don't think that they are not amazing and that they are not supernatural and that they are not divinely powerful. All right? So grace was given to each one of us. 
There's no Christian who does not have a charismatic gift. Every Christian has one of these grace gifts. And he goes on and then describes some of the foundational gifts in verse 11. Come down to verse 11. He gave gifts. And what did he give? He gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. He gave the evangelists. He gave the shepherds and teachers. So here Paul highlights a few of the grace gifts that have been given to the church, focusing on the foundational gifts first. Apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. In fact, that's what Paul mentions in a previous chapter here in this very same letter, that the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. We'll be talking more about the prophets when we get back to the seven gifts in Romans chapter 12, because that's the first gift that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 12. But for now, I want to keep moving. So the apostles and the prophets, they are the ones through whom God revealed the truths of the New Testament and have given us the holy scriptures by which we might be able to understand the mind and the will and the plan of God. The doctrine that God has given to us and the exhortation that goes along with it was delivered once for all to the church through his apostles and prophets in the Holy Spirit. And the evangelists, they are those whom God has sent out to out all the places in the world. He has commissioned to preach the gospel of the apostles and the prophets. So the good news of Jesus Christ revealed to the apostles and prophets is preached among the nations by the evangelists. That's why he focuses on them in that next part. But then he mentions the pastors and teachers. And what the pastors and teachers do, the pastors and teachers teach the doctrine that has been revealed by the apostles and prophets. So we've got the Holy Scriptures, and in the Holy Scriptures, Paul is still with us in his writings. Peter is still with us in his writings. Do you want to know what Paul taught? Do you want to listen to what Peter said? Open it up and read it. It's right here. The foundation that was given once for all to the saints. Do you want to listen to an apostle? God gives you every opportunity to listen to an apostle, right? And so then the teacher comes along and says, all right, here's what the apostles have given to us. Here's what it means. Let me explain it. Let me unpack it. And this is a supernatural gift given by God to members of the church, his congregation, to be able to explain and teach apostolic doctrine. The shepherds and teachers, the evangelists, the apostles and prophets given to the church in order to do what? Notice verse 12 in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, if you have studied your New Testament, you know that the saints are not referring to really pious Christians who have died and been canonized. That's not what the Bible refers to as saints. But instead, when the Bible is talking about saints, it's talking about you, all of you, that all of God's people are sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. All of God's people have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, and so you are a holy one. That's what the word saint means. You are holy unto God, and so the saints, you all, are equipped for the work of ministry. This is what we focused on last week, that every member is a minister. Every member is a saint. Every member is a minister. Every member has been given grace in order to carry out a ministry within the body of Christ. And so we've got, you know, 80-some members here this morning who have been gifted by God in order to build up the church with a special ministry. And all of you performing your ministry is what then causes the church to grow. Now, me as a shepherd and teacher, I am equipping you. 
And so this 45 minutes or 50 minutes, whatever it ends up being, this is an equipping time where the doctrine of the apostles and prophets is put into your heart and mind, the Holy Spirit working through me, the Holy Spirit working in you, equipping you with the knowledge that you need in order to be able to carry out the ministry that God has appointed you for. Starting to see the picture here? It's a glorious picture. So God has given all of these foundational gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So does the pastor-teacher do the work of the ministry? No. He equips the people for the work of the ministry. Do the elders do the work of the ministry? Do the deacons do the work of the ministry? Well, they only do a part of the work of the ministry. That the work of the ministry is done by every part, everybody. The ministry is something we all have a share in, and it won't get done if you don't do your part. And just coming and listening is not doing your part. Coming and listening is equipping you to do your part. But if you only come and listen, and then you don't do your part, you've missed the point of church. And when we talk about church, what I mean is, you've missed the point of our gathering on Sunday morning. right? So many people, they have this view of church, that you, you come to church on Sunday morning, and, and then that's, that's it. You know, you've done your duty. You put something in the offering, you listen to the preacher, good job. Mission accomplished. No, that's not mission accomplished, that's mission begun. That's the beginning of the ministry. And the mission is accomplished then by all of the different spiritual gifts that hopefully we're going to get to talk about. If not this week, we'll get to it next week, right? So Ephesians chapter 4 lays out the plan, the scope. And so this is how it begins. This is how it starts. And what does it lead to? What is the goal? Notice what it says next in verse 12. For building up the body of Christ. So who builds up the body of Christ? You do. You all do. This is a work that has been given to us as a group, as a family. We are the family of God. And so we are building up one another. That's called edification. Edification is the word we use to talk about the building up of the body of Christ. Until. So here you get the goal. So we've had the process, and this process is going to go on how long? How do we know when we've got done with the building? All right? And that's important to know, right? When this building was built, there was a plan. There was a blueprint. And people volunteered and they showed up and they brought their tools and they worked together and they constructed this building. And when it was done, they put their tools down and went home. There's got to be an end to the building project. What is the end? What is the goal? Paul tells us, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, when all of us here are perfectly like Jesus Christ, then it's mission accomplished. Then we're done. That's great. At least we know where we're going, where we're trying to get to. Now, have we accomplished that goal? Is everyone here perfectly like the Lord Jesus Christ in every way? No. We still got some work to do then, right? Amen. Amen we got some work to do. You've got work to do. I've got work to do. God has assigned each one of us a role to get to this mature manhood, to get to this knowledge of the Son of God, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And who can say how glorious that is? The fullness of Christ. But every step that we make, every improvement that we make, every ministry that is performed by the power of the Holy Spirit and building up the body of Christ gets us a little bit closer. It gets us a little bit more like Christ, corporately, and individually. Notice verse 14 also. Verse 14. 
so that we may no longer be children. That's the immaturity versus the maturity of the previous verse. We don't want to be like children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. What are children like? Well, children are easily deceived. Children are easily distracted. Children have a hard time listening and following instructions. I don't know if any of your parents have realized that yet about children, right? So we don't want to be like children as a church. We don't be like, ooh, shiny object over here. What did God tell I don't remember what God told me. No, that's, that's childish church. We want to be the mature church that is able to follow the instructions of God and not get distracted by every little thing going on in the world around us. Now, if you're interested in what's going on in the world around you, there's plenty of places where you can go to hear interesting news and reports and commentary and analysis of current events. But that's not what we do here in the church. What we do here in the church is we preach eternal truths that haven't changed since God delivered them to the church in the first century. We are reminding you of the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints by which you'll be able to analyze all the the goings-on in the world. But we're not getting caught up in this political movement or in this economic event or, or preaching about soil conservation. I mean, if you want to learn about that, there's places where you can go and learn that. But here, we are being established in the truth that the apostles and the prophets have delivered to us. That's the ministry of the pastors and the teachers so that you are equipped in order to carry out your role in the church. We don't want to be childlike. We don't want to be getting on every bandwagon that comes along. Oh, look at this church. They've got a huge budget and thousands of people coming to their church and this amazing building. Let's do what they did. No, let's not do what they did. Let's do what the Scripture tells us to do. Let's try that and see if God will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of getting acknowledgement and praise from men. We don't want to be tossed to and fro by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, what happens here when we gather together, we speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Powerful combination. Some people are pretty good at loving and accepting. Some people are pretty good at speaking the truth. But in the church, the Spirit of Christ teaches us how to do both. How to speak the truth but to do it out of a heart of genuine concern for the well-being of others. We speak the truth in love. And as the pastor-teacher speaks the truth in love, and as the individual members of the body then speak the truth in love to one another, then we grow up in every way into him who is the head. This is a repeat of the goal he mentioned earlier. This is another way of saying attaining to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So by speaking the truth in love, this process is enabled to work out. Now, we live in a world where there is no acknowledgement of the truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and so as the world fails to acknowledge Jesus Christ, they've gone so far as to even acknowledge the existence of objective truth. And so what you'll hear people say in our world is, you just have to live your truth. Just live your truth. We're not about living your truth. And you're not about living your truth. Here in the church, for those who know God, for those who love God, we are about living His truth. We're going to live His truth. That's what this passage is talking about. We don't just listen to His truth. We live His truth. And you have to analyze yourself, for each one will give an account of himself to God. Am I someone who listens to the truth and doesn't do it? 
Or am I someone who listens to the truth and is zealous to put it into practice? Do I go home and analyze myself? Do I go home and pray and ask God to show me, God, am I living according to the truth? Or am I just listening? As James warns us about those who easily forget what God has said and do not put it into practice. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, not just in some ways. You know, some churches are satisfied, well, we're like Christ in this area, but we can be conformed to the world in this area because, you know, you don't want to be too holy. you still got to be relevant to your culture. And, and you've got to beware of this mindset that, well, there's some things where we'll be Christ-like, but there's other things where we're not going to focus on that. We're not going to talk about that. But our goal is we are zealous in every way to be completely conformed to Jesus Christ. We're not leaving any part of the Bible out. We're not leaving any of God's instructions out. We're not going to start whispering where God makes his word very clear. No editing. I love what one preacher said. We are God's publishers, not his editors. If any of you have ever worked on writing a book, you know the difference between a publisher and an editor, right? The editor is the one who says, well, you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't say that, let's change this, let's rearrange that. That's the editor's job. God doesn't need an editor. His word is perfect. And a a preacher who thinks it's my job to edit the scriptures, to take some of it and say, here's what I want to present, and here's what I don't want to present, and here's what we'll leave out, that person is unfaithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and is not worthy of anyone listening to him. But the publisher of God's word, he is the one who presents everything that God has given to us. Now, notice then verse 16. Christ is the one from whom the whole body... Each individual part, each one of you, all of us together, are being held together. We're joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And notice that this unity means that we are dependent upon the proper working of each individual part. Each part must be working properly for the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love. So say we've got 75% of the members of this congregation... Functioning properly. They're walking in holiness. They're spending time with the Lord. They know what their spiritual gift is and they're eagerly looking for opportunities to use their spiritual gift. That would be pretty amazing. I wonder how many churches have 75% of their congregation active in ministry in obedience to Scripture. But that's not the goal. 75% is not the goal. We need 100%. We need every single person doing what they're supposed to be doing if we're going to reach the goal. And that's why we haven't reached the goal, right? What's the goal? That we be completely Christ-like. It depends upon you. It depends upon you. It depends upon each and every one of you. You have a vital role to play in the spiritual maturity of the church. This local congregation... And as this local congregation is connected to the body of Christ universally, to the universal church. Because let's say we get 100% of the people here functioning biblically and filled with the Spirit of God, well, that's still not the end of the work because there's a lot of Christians and a lot of churches out there that are not there yet. And so we have a burden and a passion for them. Do you see the vision? Do you feel the vision? Are you excited by this vision? I can't think of a work that would be more exciting than this work. I can't think of a calling, I can't think of a purpose that is more meaningful than this. 
building the body of Christ on earth and bringing it to maturity. So, with that in mind, we're ready to head back to Romans chapter 12. Maybe we'll hit 1 Peter 4 another time. Come back with me to Romans chapter 12. So let's get into the list here. There are seven spiritual gifts listed in verses 6, 7, and 8. And this is not an all-inclusive list of all the different kinds of ministries, but it's a representative list. And it's also not a definitive list. This is not the only way that you could describe spiritual gifts in the body of Christ because there are other lists in the Bible, notably 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where there's different words that are used to describe the ministries. Like in 1 Corinthians 12, you have the gift of helps. But here it's called he who serves. Similar idea, different word. Also, missing from this list are some of the gifts that he mentions in other places, like pastor-teachers. He just mentions teachers here, but he has a more selective designation by linking them together with pastors in Ephesians chapter 4, or evangelists that we read about in Ephesians 4, or apostles, which he mentions in 1 Corinthians 12, also in Ephesians chapter 4. So this is a list of gifts that Paul would have seen as being operative in the church at Rome that he's writing to, but it's not the only way to describe the gifts, and it's not an exhaustive list of gifts. It's a representative list. So that's important to keep in mind. Let's look at the first on the list. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. The first gift on the list is the gift of prophecy. Let's talk a little bit about prophecy. This is one of those controversial gifts because there's two different views in the church as to whether or not prophets are still functioning in the church today. And this is further complicated by the fact that prophecy is often defined differently by different groups. And so some people will say, yes, the gift of prophecy is at work in the church today, and it's exactly like it was in the Old Testament prophets, and it's exactly like it was in the New Testament, that that gift is still operative. Other people will say, no, prophecy doesn't just mean predicting the future and being able to write scripture, but it just means being able to, to speak to people about God's will and God's word, and so that gift is still in the church today, and they call it prophecy. Other people would say, well, no, that's not prophecy, that's just the gift of exhortation or the gift of teaching. And so people have different ways of defining what prophecy is, and then they have different views as to whether or not that gift is still functioning in the church today. As far as my understanding of Scripture goes, I view prophecy as being the exact same thing that the Old Testament prophets were and the exact same thing that we see recorded in the book of Acts regarding prophets. This is somebody who is authoritatively speaking for God and receiving direct revelation from God. And in the church in Rome in the first century, there would have been prophets at work people who were receiving direct revelation from God. Remember when Jesus was speaking with the woman at the well and he told her about her past? He told her about her past husbands and he told her about her present living situation. And she said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Because they didn't know each other. This was divine revelation that he knew things that God would be able to know about this woman. And so she says, well, that's what a prophet is. And, and that 
association of prophet with divine knowledge, direct revelation, is consistent throughout the scriptures. And so I don't want to go along with people who want to redefine the word prophet to mean, well, it just means that you're speaking to people from God, and so it's kind of like exhortation or teaching. Did the prophets exhort? Well, sure, the prophets exhorted. Did the prophets teach? Well, sure, they taught. But if you're talking about what does Paul mean by prophet, well, he distinguishes it in the list from exhortation, and he distinguishes it in the list from teaching. And what is the distinguishing mark of a prophet in Scripture? Well, someone who receives direct revelation. Do I think that Christians are receiving direct revelation today? No, I don't think so. This was a vital ministry in the early church because of the limited number of apostles. You had 12 apostles, maybe 13 if, if you're counting the Apostle Paul in there. And how many churches do you have? Well, you've got hundreds of churches. And so they didn't have a completed New Testament. Paul was still writing the book of Romans. He hadn't written it yet. And so in the early church, as the word of Christ spreads to all these different places, then the gift of the prophet was vital to the life of the first century church. And the prophets, as we gather, surmise, from the New Testament, they received this spiritual gift from apostles. There were certain spiritual gifts that were associated with the apostles and were received directly from the apostles. And as the apostles died and went to heaven, then those gifts started to disappear from the church because God had already laid the foundation of the church, and you don't have to keep laying the foundation. And God then had completed the New Testament, and so the church had the doctrine of the apostles and prophets, and there was no further deed for this spiritual gift in the church. And if you examine church history, that's exactly what you find. As you go through the second century of the church, the gift of prophet is disappearing off the scene. If somebody wanted to say, well, the gift of prophecy is still among us today, well, then there would need to be demonstrable proof that this person is actually receiving revelation from God and is not just making it up. And uh, there's a lot of people that are pretending to be prophets who I don't think are genuine prophets from God. All that being said, that's not what I want to focus on this morning. I don't want to focus on the controversy. I want to focus on the actual work of the ministry that is ongoing. You can study the examples of the prophets, but notice how the prophet is supposed to function within the church. Paul lists this one first because it is a very important gift in the life of the church in the first century. And he said that the prophet is supposed to prophesy in proportion to our faith. What does he mean when he says, in proportion to our faith? Two different ways of reading this. The majority way that people read it in our day is that this means that the prophet is supposed to use his gift of prophecy in accordance with the revelation that he's receiving. And so you want to be accurate to whatever it is that God has spoken to you to re report that. So you've been given this faith, and so you want to make sure that you're careful to just speak according to what God has revealed to you. I don't think that's the best way to understand this. As I read it, I read it as saying the second opinion, which is that the prophet is supposed to speak in accordance with the faith, the doctrines, the truth that God has given to us in the scriptures. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is what Paul is most likely referring to when he says the prophet is supposed to speak in proportion to the faith. 
And the actual phrase that Paul uses is the analogy of the faith. And that phrase, the analogy of the faith, has actually come over into English. And it's a phrase that we use. Milton Terry wrote a good book on interpreting the Bible. Hermeneutics is what it's called, the science of Bible interpretation. And Milton Terry, he describes the analogy of the faith as the general harmony of fundamental doctrine which pervades the entire scriptures. There's a coherence to the truth that is in this book. It agrees with itself. The way that God is described in the Old Testament is the way that God is described in the New Testament. His character, his attributes, it's all the same throughout Scripture. And what God has revealed in one century is the same as what he's revealed in another century, even if it is more detailed in the later revelation. There's no contradiction within it. That's the analogy of the faith. And I think that's what Paul is actually referring to here. And that's why we use this phrase the way that we do. Milton Terry further said, about the analogy of the faith, no single statement or obscure passage of one book can be allowed to set aside a doctrine which is clearly established by many passages. The obscure text must be interpreted in the light of those which are plain and positive. So, Paul says there's prophets in the first century church, and there were prophets functioning in the first century church. You can read about in the book of Acts. And when they received a prophecy, they were supposed to judge what they had received according to the doctrine that had already been established and delivered by God. And so you wouldn't want to say anything that was contrary to the truth that had already been revealed. So this is telling the church how to analyze prophets who come along. You've got a prophet who says, I've received a word from the Lord, and this is what I want you to, to hear. Well, you analyze it according to what has already been revealed, the analogy of the faith. And that's the way you evaluate teachers as well, and the way you interpret some of the more difficult parts of God's word, lining it up with what is clear in Scripture. Let's go on to the second gift here on the list, very important gift. Paul puts it second for a reason. He says there, if service in our serving, the one who has the gift of service should exercise it in serving. As I mentioned, this gift is probably referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as the gift of helps. The gift of service or the gift of helps is the ability to see what needs to get done and the joy in doing it. That's the gift of service in the body of Christ. It's not just a natural ability. It's a spiritual ability. And those who have this spiritual ability, they might also be well qualified as deacons. I point this out because I want you to make a distinction in your mind between gifts and offices. Everyone has a spiritual gift, but not everyone is appointed to an office in the church. I was a teacher before I was appointed as an elder. Now I'm an elder who focuses on teaching. But I've always been a teacher because that was the gift that God gave me. Of course, I had to grow, I had to develop that gift. But there's a difference between gifts and offices. But the word deacon is the word that comes from this word for service. It's the same root word in the Greek. And so those who have the gift of service make great deacons. And it has a lot of different practical applications. One of the ways in which people deaconed in the ancient world was by waiting tables. And that's probably the most common association of this word when it comes to service. Somebody who waits on tables. And so you're serving drinks, you're serving food, you're meeting practical needs. And we have a great example of this in the early church. You read about it in Acts chapter 5. 
there was a problem that arose in the Jerusalem church, the first church that God established, where there was a dispute that certain people's widows were not being taken care of the way that other people's widows were being taken care of by the church. And one of the ministries of the church is to care for widows of people in the church. And so the apostles, they said, well, we're supposed to focus on the preaching and the teaching and the prayer and the shepherding, and so we're going to appoint men who will be over this service to the widows, making sure that the widows receive the help that they need, food, maintenance of their homes, things like that. And so they appointed seven to look out for that. Now, it doesn't actually call them deacons there in Acts chapter 5, but most interpreters recognize this as the origin of the office of deacon, somebody who meets the practical needs of family members in the church, because we're family. And so a deacon is somebody who has been appointed to an office of service. But whether you've been appointed to the office of service or not is not important. What's important for you is, are you serving? If you have the gift of service, then you are to be serving. Be doing what you've been called to do. And you see this pattern through the next couple of spiritual gifts there in verses 6 through 8. If service in serving, the one who teaches in teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation. And then Paul changes it up after that to give some more specifics on how he wants people to minister their gifts. But when it comes to number two, three, and four on the list, he just says, do what you've been called to do. If service, serve. If teaching, teach. If exhortation, exhort. Now what I want to say about that is that if you have the gift of teaching or you have the gift of exhortation or you have the gift of service or any of these gifts, it doesn't mean that you never do anything else in the church. I'm a pastor teacher, and so when we're done with the fellowship meal downstairs, uh, I say, well, I'm not going to wash dishes. That's for the people who have the gift of service to wash dishes, you know, and, and I'm just going to stand up and start teaching because, you know, I'm supposed to teach. You know, and that's not how it works. Everybody runs sometimes in their life, but not everybody you call a runner, right? Everybody swims at a point or time in their life, but not everybody's a swimmer. Somebody is a swimmer or somebody is a runner, if that's what they focus on, if that's what they spend hours and hours doing and training, that's the runner, that's the swimmer. And so it doesn't mean you don't ever do any teaching if you don't have the gift of teaching. It just means that's not what you spend the majority of your time doing. It's not what you focus on honing your skills and your strength in. I spend a lot more time focusing on teaching than I do on service. That doesn't mean that I don't serve. It's like a, a doctor who's getting ready for surgery, and he's got an opportunity to talk with the person beforehand, and he doesn't say, well, you know, I'm not a medical counselor, so I'm not going to spend any time with the person talking with them before the surgery. No. He takes a moment, and he talks with the person and says, you know, this is what we're going to do, and, and this is how it's going to be the result, and this is what we're hoping for. And so he takes a moment to counsel with the person, even though you wouldn't call him a counselor. And that's the same way with the spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. So you're going to be doing some mercy, you're going to be doing some giving. You're going to be doing some teaching. You probably won't be doing any prophesying, but you, you will be doing some serving. No matter what your gift is, the point is focus on your strength. Let's talk a little bit about the gift of service and how it can manifest itself in so many different ways. There's church grounds, outside, inside. There's cleaning. There's research that goes into some things that service can be involved with. There's a church library in many churches. There's musicians who serve in music. There's computer technicians who serve in the sound booth. There's a service in people's homes. 
as we take care of one another and look out for one another and mow one another's lawns. There's meals that are done in service in certain times in people's lives where they're, they're so busy or they're recovering from some medical event and, and you bring them meals. There's secretarial work or treasury or bill paying. There's all kinds of ways that the gift of service can be manifested in a church. And I'm just scratching the surface there. And so I imagine that, that God appoints many gifts of service within the church. Because what is the goal of the teaching? Why do we have teachers? Well, it's to equip the saints for the work of service. And service is, is practical. Meeting real needs among real people. The physical needs that are met by the servant are mirrored by the emotional needs that are met by the encourager or the one who shows mercy. We are here for one another in so many different ways. Let's go a little bit further this morning. We've talked a lot about teaching, so let's just knock that one off the list as well and we'll save some of the others for next week. What does the teacher do? The teacher is not just the preacher on Sunday morning, but it's good if there's more than one teacher within a church because the teacher is someone who excels in explaining God's Word. And you don't just need somebody from 400 years ago to explain God's Word, and you don't just need somebody that lives on the other side of the world to explain God's Word, but you need somebody that lives with you and knows you and is in your community and in your culture to explain what does God's Word mean for us here and now. And so the teacher excels in explaining God's Word, and and it's good to have multiple teachers. Good to have a number of men who are faithful and teaching, and not just men, But women also, with the gift of teaching, teaching other women and teaching children, the scripture makes it clear that it's unbiblical for a woman to teach a man, but that doesn't mean that women don't have the gift of teaching, because there's other people that need teaching besides men. And so there's lots of teaching that needs to go on in a church, and it's not just what takes place in the pulpit, but it's what takes place in the homes, it's what takes place in the Sunday schools, it's what takes place in many different venues and opportunities. It's related to the office of elder. It's connected to that in the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.9, but it's certainly not limited to the elders. It is linked to pastors in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, but don't think that you have to be a pastor or an elder in order to have the gift of teaching. No, we need good teachers who are not in office as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28 actually lists the gifts in order of importance. And you might think, well, that's odd. I thought that we were all supposed to feel really important, and we are all supposed to feel really important. But even among really important, there's still an order of most important. And teaching is actually the most important gift that is still operative in the church today, according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. Because, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 4, the teaching is what equips the other work. It's not that teaching is the most important because it's an end in itself. No, teaching is most important because without good teaching, the other stuff doesn't happen the way it's supposed to happen. If you don't know how to do it, it doesn't get done. But once you know how to do it, then you can do it. So that's the goal. I want each one of you to go home from church today and think, what is it that God wants me to do in order to bring the church to be more Christ-like. What can I do in service? What can I do in leadership? What can I do in giving? What can I do in, in showing mercy? 
in order to make the church as much like Jesus Christ as it can be. And you do your thing. You don't have to do it all. You focus on what God has given you to do. And as each one of us does that, you'll be amazed at what is able to be accomplished. You know, sometimes people just get this defeatist attitude that it is what it is and it'll always be what it is. It is what it is, but God is with us. And there's nothing that's too hard for God. There's nothing that's impossible for God. Can the church reach unity? Can the church reach maturity? Not only here, but globally? Yes, it can. It can. It starts with you. You do your part. And when you stand before God and he asks you, what did you do in order to bring my church to maturity? What did you do in order to love me by loving my bride? And when he looks at your life and evaluates it, will he say, you did your part. You did what I designed you to do. You did what I gifted you to do. The weakness of the church, the immaturity of the church, the failure of the church, it's not on you because you did what I told you to. That's what I want each one of you to be able to say. And that's what I want to be able to say. Because I am going to stand before my Lord and he's going to know everything. And so what am I going to say? Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, as I take a moment to evaluate myself in your sight, I, I see a lot of failure. I see a lot of foolishness. I see a lot of weakness. And I recognize that that's not just affected me, but it's affected the church. Because I am a man who is connected. I am a man who has an important part to play in the church. And if I'm not what I'm supposed to be, then how can the church be what it's supposed to be? And Lord, I pray for each one of us here this morning that you'll give us a, a spiritual humility to be able to recognize our weakness, our foolishness, and that you'll also give us a, an encouragement, a spiritual call to recognize that it doesn't have to be this way, that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness, and that we can fulfill our part in the body of Christ with the zeal and the love and the wisdom that comes from you. We thank you for your great patience. You have not given up on your bride. You have not divorced her or thrown her away for all of her follies, but that you remain faithful and that you amazingly work in the church. And there are so many good things happening, so much to give thanks for, so many people being faithful in so many ways that are accomplishing an eternal work, a work that matters, a real light in the midst of profound darkness. We thank you for all of that because we know it comes from you. All the spiritual gifts come from you. All the graces come from you. All the power comes from you. All the wisdom, all the knowledge, everything, Lord. It's from you and it's for you. To you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, now and forevermore. Amen.